This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. For prosecutors as well as priests, the way that we have sex has long been a subject of deep concern. And when prevailing community standards are challenged, the response has often been repression and severe punishment. Eric Berkowitz is both an attorney and an author in San Francisco who has studied this phenomenon. His new book is called Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire. Eric Berkowitz, welcome to our Legally Speaking series. Thanks for having me, Marty. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, As far as you can tell, what were the first written laws governing sexual behavior? Uh, Who wrote them, and what exactly did they say? When I first started the research for the book, I was answering that very question. Someone posed to me, what are the first laws, Eric? I have no idea. So I went back and looked, and they governed adultery. They governed... um, people having relations with girls who are promised or betrothed. People were married off very, very early. Maybe they lived in their father's house. Also, strangely, sex with uh, livestock. Um, A lot of that, I believe, of course, we can't know. There are no emails, but that that had to do with religious practice. It was an agricultural society, etc. So sex was the concern in one form or another of maybe 20% of the laws that I found, mm-hmm. which struck me as a very large percentage. I mean, it, it does seem to me that because uh, the sexual urge can be disruptive, uh, it makes sense for societies to want to regulate that behavior so that people can live in harmony with one another. But it seems to me that doesn't begin to explain some of the crazy rules that you describe in your book. For example, in Mesopotamia, the Hittite society around 1300-1400 BC, uh, you say that anyone caught having sex with a dog, a cow, or uh, a sheep would be immediately put to death. But that uh, if one were to be caught having sex with a horse or mule, uh, while that is not exactly encouraged, uh, the person who was caught doing that uh, wouldn't be punished in any particular way. Why uh, a cow yeah. was defiling to the point where society couldn't tolerate this person living any further, that itself causing probably a very substantial disruption, because if he had contact with cows, he might have uh, had a family and land, and etc., uh, why that created such a defilement, whereas a uh, relationship with um, a horse or a mule didn't. I mean, to us, it sounds utterly 
almost comical. Uh, I can't explain. There must have been, and that's the theory, and a lot of this is just trying to deduce from the thin records that we have a religious significance uh, to one animal and another, especially in Egypt. You mentioned ancient Egypt. In ancient Egypt, uh, having sex with goats was actually encouraged, you say, in your book. Uh, Again, uh, that was tied in with the religious ethos of that period? Yeah, yeah. Now, our sources for that, the main source for that is Herodotus, who is Mm -hmm. a Greek traveler and historian uh, who I love and who everybody who reads loves, uh, known as the father of history and also the father of lies. Um, although that account is, is, is not as disputed as some of his others. He, much of what we find in sexual descriptions or in descriptions of the sexual habits of others involve a smirk, involve a cultural judgment, although the goat in Egypt uh, was, at least according to Herodotus, seen as the incarnation of, of an Egyptian form of the god Pan, and uh, sex with goats, from what I understand, did occur as part of religious ceremonies. Mm-hmm. No, no, no problem with that. Um, I don't know how much farther we can take that other than to, through the course of this conversation and through the course of thinking about these things, to withhold ourselves from the automatic sense of moral and cultural superiority that we have over others. We are no wiser than the Egyptians. We're simply different. Yeah, and I don't want to dwell on, <laughs> on this topic. But, but I'm happy me, to talk about it. <laughs> but let me ask you this. Uh, you say that uh, during the course of your research, uh, you discovered that there are no eternal sex laws, no natural sex laws that what is perceived as virtuous in one culture can just as easily be perceived as unnatural and sinful in another. Uh, did that surprise you? Yes, it did. It did. And uh, this is a very large debate in this new field of historical endeavor, which has really crept up in the last 50 years, which is gender studies, gen- uh, history of sexual practices, history of sexual laws. It's a very burgeoning field in academia and one of the main questions is the notion of natural sex law. Is there the word unnatural is often used um, against habits or practices that the person who's using the word doesn't approve of. I was surprised, very surprised that I could not find one practice one event that everybody agrees or has agreed was wrong. The first thing that comes to mind is incest, which is uh, just the word is disturbing. It's a, it's a, a radioactive subject, and it's a subject that needs to be opened up because we, we know how much incest goes on in a very abusive fashion with domestic violence, etc. But incest having a scientific basis that no one disagrees with, that outbreeding keeps the species alive, allows us to develop, etc., would be something that societies almost, as soon as they began to intermix, uh, would all agree on. But I found significant exceptions to that. Now, the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, the Jews, of course, 
Christians, incest is the highest order of crime amongst all. But Egyptians, Persians, Hawaiians, various cultures in in the New World, uh, incest was condoned, practiced at almost all levels of society. And you can look towards an economic basis for that. You can look towards a spiritual basis for that. You can look towards a lot. But to answer your question, with those kinds of exceptions, Egyptians, especially Persians, these are advanced societies, advanced, sophisticated you, societies. the Persians actually required incest. Well, at you, times, yes. yes. You, you write about ancient Persia, any reluctance on a man's part to marry his sister or mother was considered a grave sin deserving of damnation in the highest degree. Now, given what we know about genetics, any, it seems to me any society that would require incest would be confronted with an epidemic of birth defects. Do we know, in fact, that that's what happened in ancient Persia? We know that ancient Persia was an immense place. With, uh, with extreme cultural variations. The sources that I found which said that absolutely held that. And to, I don't know, and I don't think we do know, whether those kinds of marriages were exclusive marriages on the man's part, whether there were children produced through concubines, through second or third wives, whether or not that was ex- exclusive. We do know that an incestuous couple um, were under the Zoroastrian faith, which which was quite entrenched through at least through the ruling classes of Persia. That there was a sense of blessing, a sense of harmony, a sense of goodness that came from that. Before we go much further with this, it does seem to me that no discussion of sex and punishment would be complete without showing a clip from the Ten Commandments with uh, Charlton Heston. Uh, Actually, my mom uh, took me to see this film at a very impressionable age, and I was, I remember one scene in in particular, this is the scene while Charlton Heston is up there uh, receiving God's law, his people down below are uh, kind of falling back into pagan ways. They, they construct a golden calf to worship, and then they proceed to... They melt to, their jewelry down to it. Right, right. How they brought that equipment into the desert with them is, is hard, to, hard to know. But <laughs> With their masa, they brought a kiln. Exa- yeah. Yes. And then they proceeded to have what uh, I would describe as a PG-rated orgy. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think it was let, M back then. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> it was M. Anyway, let's take a look at that clip, and then we can talk about it. And the people rose up to play, and did eat and drink. Here's my question, though. In this movie, it's strongly implied that these pagans were having one hell of a time. Uh, you know, uh, you know that they were having this nonstop orgy, and then the Jews came along, and that they represented a radical break from all of that. Is that in fact the case? There was a a sense that pervaded that pervades Jewish law that sex is a blessed thing when it's engaged in solely f- 
to make more juice. Okay, that sex, and there's nothing wrong with feeling pleasure as you engage in that, but when you veer off from the business of procreation, it becomes a sin. And that has huge, huge consequences. Uh, that didn't preclude, uh, obviously, polygamy. No, we spoke about that. It's an, it, you know, the Jews also were not cut from different flesh from those around them. And polygamy was a custom. Polygamy was also a way to generate offspring with, uh, yeah, in I mean, volume. And, and polygamy was accepted. I mean, in the Bible, it, uh, it says that King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, that, to me, seems more consistent with the idea of exhaustion than restraint. Uh, but as was help, also help, so an help, indicator of wealth. So okay, it was. But, but help me out with this. How how is a society that embraces that kind of conspicuous polygamy uh, may, maintain a view of itself as a restrained culture? The polygamy was a an entrenched Middle Eastern custom that the that was not necessarily seen as overt lasciviousness or license. It was simply a man having a number of wives. Now, mm-hmm. Solomon and the, you know, the myth of him having you know, hundreds of wives and thousands of concubines, well, that, that's almost that's an indication of power and position. Uh, the, uh, the Jews very much accepted that a woman had to be faithful, the man had to be faithful, but he was all, it's a paradox. He was also allowed to keep several wives and then in that sense produce more children, which was absolutely necessary. And also, of course, the Jews uh, held on to their slaves. Uh, there wasn't an 11th commandment that says thou shalt not have slaves, right? And where there, wherever there's slavery, there's going to be sexual abuse along with all kinds of other abuses, right? Yes. Sexual sub- submission is part of the job description of a slave. Do you think it's almost like a law of physics that the more restrained and more puritanical a society tries to be, the more hypocritical it becomes? In that sense, I think yes. In that sense, I think that as, as the law sets ideals and sets goals that can't be met or that almost surely can't be met, you're setting up a society in which law-breaking becomes a very regular thing. And we see that as we go into the Christian era. We see that as we go into the early modern era when, um, in the 17th century when the amount of sexual restrictions multiplied at least in Europe, by many, many times. The more laws you enact, the more opportunity you create for law-breaking. And also, the sexual urge, as we're talking about, stands apart from most others. It's, uh, yeah, so when we get to the Christians many yeah, centuries later, yeah. uh, what great or perhaps not-so-great things did they bring to this idea of restraint and, and, and perhaps hypocrisy? Most of the great Christian fathers were at one point ascetics, uh, at one point monks living in the desert. Egypt was the, and, and St. Augustine, who I focused on, uh, whereas Christ himself said precious little about sex, precious little about sex, 
the those that carried and developed a religion in his name said quite a bit. Uh, Augustine tied the sexual urge to original sin. Tied the sexual urge to this the manifestation. The, this the, goes back to, to the, the Garden myth, of Eden. To the myth of the Garden of, yeah. of of Eden, where Adam disobeyed God's command, and thereby tainted the rest of us intrinsically. And Augustine, who was a bit of a libertine in his in in his younger days, and had a concubine for years, with whom he had a son, and had and it's in his con- confessions had a had a, a very let's put it a vigorous sexual. Uh, adolescence and you know manhood, young manhood, um, saw the genitalia and the sexual urge as as a punishment. Saw saw it as a manifestation of the devil entering the human spirit. And to that extent, holiness. To that extent, a good Christian life. To that extent, a life lived according to God's commandments entailed a resistance to the force of the devil, which was the sexual urge. If anything could, could create neurosis in our current terms, that's it. And you know, reaching even further back to Paul, he wrote, it's better to marry than to burn, but not much. I suppose, though, in one sense, Christians were more uh, equitable about how they viewed sex between men and women uh, they held both sexes to standards that were virtually unattainable. Correct. And and I suppose and the interesting you and talk in a about, sense you're right that and, that that and, traversed both, both yeah, genders. Yeah. So that in that sense they were progressive, I suppose. At the same time, and we could talk about the two-faced aspect of all this. Um, you know, the church went into the prostitution business uh, in the Middle Ages, and the justifications for that are. Uh, comical, but for example, uh, the tax on prostitutes. Even uh, you know, Rome made pretty good money from taxing its prostitution, and and the tax on prostitutes remained uh, well into the Christian era. And so, yes, we don't like prostitution except for when there's some revenue to be made. When the Protestants came along and started to draw attention to this gap between theory and practice, did the Catholics have to sell off their brothels? Well, it's interesting. That's a great question. The answer is uh, yes, and I'll tell you how that happened. Um, the Catholic Church obviously was highly disturbed. I mean, a stupid understatement. They created enormous problems in the Thirty Years' War, etc., in Europe, and there became sort of a one-upsmanship one between Catholic and Protestant societies, a moral one-upsmanship. One the Catholic Church retreated into what's called the Council of Trent, a 20-year 20 20 year council where they were trying to deal with the challenges from the Reformation. And rather than admit, adjust, loosen up, they doubled down. Over the past year, there was one gentleman who ran for president who was Roman Catholic. Uh, I've he, heard he, about him. Yeah, he wasn't shy about expressing his views on sexuality and sin. He talked about abortion. He talked about homosexuality. And uh, he also talked about birth control. Uh, we actually have a clip of him doing just that. And why don't we take a look at that and we can then talk about it. Uh, 
I am a Roman Catholic. Uh, I do my best to live my life in conformity with my faith. The Roman Catholic faith teaches, and humanae vitae, that we should not interfere with conception. We should not practice contraception, artificial contraception. That's what the church teaches, and that's what I and my wife of 21 years abide by. And that is my moral judgment, but it is not one that I, that I feel that is that should be or will be imposed on anyone. So I would not vote, and I've said this repeatedly, although this doesn't seem to quite make it into the left-wing blogs, I have said repeatedly that I would not vote for banning contraception. That is an individual decision. Contraception can and should be made available. I, as a, as, because of my faith and faith convictions and because of what my church teaches, do not participate in that. As far as the other, uh, the other issue, which goes back, let's go a little deeper, there was, this was the Griswold versus Connecticut case, which I was asked about, which created a new constitutional right, which in my opinion is judicial activism, just like Roe versus Wade was judicial activism, just like the Kelo decision was judicial activism, which is a group of people creating rights in the Constitution that don't exist. We have a way to create new rights. And that way is through the constitutional amendment process. I don't know how any reasonable person can say that the founders intended a right to an abortion in the Constitution when they wrote it. I mean, it would be beyond fantasy to think that that's what the, the writing of that constitutional document meant. So, if the Supreme Court wants to change things, then what they should say is, you know, we write papers about it and say, we think this is a bad idea, but it's up to the people to make these decisions. And so, with respect to, to contraception, I thought the Griswold decision was wrong. I don't care what it was about contraception or anything else. It was just creating a right that didn't exist. And so, does the state of Connecticut, in that case, back in 1953, I think it was, have the right to pass this bill? Well, the answer is yes, they have the, the right. They shouldn't do it. I wouldn't vote for it. I think, I, I, I can't imagine, I think at the time of Griswold, I think contraception was universally available. Uh, laws weren't enforced, and that's one of the reasons you don't want to pass laws that aren't enforceable laws, even whether you may think that they're moral or not. And so, you know, understand that just because you say something you believe is morally wrong doesn't mean it should be illegal or there should be any kind of laws about it. And I don't believe there should be any laws about it. That was, of course, uh, Rick Santorum. Um, the he, most confused. He was conveying a bit of a mixed message, it seemed to me, in that clip. On the one hand, he said that he would not vote to prohibit birth control but then he went on to suggest that people didn't have a right to birth control. It's just simply that he didn't think a law to ban birth control would work. The first thing he said was, personally, I don't believe in birth control because that's what the church te teaches me. <clears throat> that's fine. At the same time, if you take what Santorum said with what he was saying probably earlier that day, later that day, and throughout his hundreds of speeches given during his short-lived campaign, uh, he was very much for using the arms of the state to, to enforce moral 
strictures that had an essentially religious basis. It seems to me wrapped up in the history of sex and punishment uh, is the history of how women's rights evolved. And, and whether we're talking about Greece, say, 500 years before the birth of Christ, or we're talking about 17th century England, uh, wives, women were essentially viewed as property. Uh, when would you say that began to change? Well, there, no one rings a bell when, 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 when society evolves. And it evolved, and it still is, in a very, very patchy way. And I would say that when, when reason, when, it, when the ideals of reason began to replace the Bible as being, uh, let's just say, after the 18th century, after the revolutions in France and America, that then that be, that became a uh, a harbinger of what was going to come, which was the recognition of a right of privacy. But let's step back a little bit. The notion is not just that women are property. <clears throat> Lots of people were property, both men and women. The notion is what uh, of what a woman is, and how and whether or not, as a woman, she actually has the same value that a man does. And a lot of it is tied up with notions of science and notion of what a woman's role in reproduction is. Uh, reaching back to Aristotle, the, which is probably the first source we can find, his belief that a woman did not have the same role in reproduction that a man did, that a woman was essentially a vessel to be quickened by a man's uh, sperm that, the, it, that Sophocles called a woman a field to plow. Uh, the, the notion is that a man has, if not 51%, 61%, more to do with reproduction, that the, that the child is the man's and the woman is essentially an incubator. And that notion of a woman being less of a person in the reproductive sense than a man, that's where law begins to find its justification. And the notion that a woman uh, is there to, uh, to be dominated, to be used, to be managed, to be husbanded, uh, that is what is, I think, motivates a lot of what, if we, if we want to call the misogynistic strain in Western law, which I recognize uh, very much from the beginning. So the notion of <clears throat> a woman being, if not property, being of a lesser value and is, is the basis for a lot of biblical injunctions, a woman after her period or during her period being essentially unclean, a woman to be dispensed with and kept a man's belief that his significant connections are with other men, not with women, women being less intelligent. I think we're still contending with that now. Yeah, and, and as you say, it's something we're still wrestling with. Uh, I noticed, uh, I don't know if I read it in your book or a paper that you had sent me, that uh, the idea that a man could be found guilty of raping his wife, that that is a very recent notion. Uh, that it wasn't until 1980, for example, that the California legislature passed a bill overturning the marital rape exemption. So this is something... It's just astonishing. This, yeah. I think, shows how far we've come in a very short period. Of, um, 
we're sitting here at Hastings. One of the most illustrious professors of Hastings was Rowan Perkins, who, was, who wrote the book that I read and that every law student of my vintage from the 80s read uh, on criminal law. He wrote the Horn Book on criminal uh, and And uh, in the edition of his that I read was from the late 50s, and it, it, it held without... It didn't hold. I mean, it identified without really much discussion that once a woman said, I do, or once the marriage began... She has to. Well, <laughs> if, it's not even a question of whether she has to. She doesn't have the right to object. That even, and Perkins said, even if violence is used. Now, the whole notion, I've been involved lately in a lot of domestic violence cases, the whole notion of there being of a woman having a right against her husband, or if you want to extend that, against her father or her brothers, to, to be safe from the predation of the men around her is very, very new. And the, uh, we, we have to realize that these rights are hard won, recently won, and easily lost. Let's talk a little bit about homosexuality. Uh, As we all now know, President Obama is fully evolved on this issue. He has now come out and has said that he believes that same-sex couples should have the right to marry if they they want to, that heterosexuals shouldn't have a monopoly on misery. Uh, That's how one of my colleagues put it. Uh, There are also about a half dozen states in this country where uh, same-sex marriage is legal. There are about as many countries in Europe where it's legal, and there were, and there still are a number of candidates uh, advocating for a constitutional amendment to invalidate those state laws. Mm-hmm. But to give the social conservatives their due, uh, this phenomenon that we're seeing, where same-sex couples are gradually winning the right to uh, join informal marriages. Uh, over the course of human history, that is an unprecedented phenomenon, is it not? Yes, it is. And, and the, the, well, there are precedents, but not, not large ones. I, I searched hard and found some strains of devotional male-male relations being sanctioned by the law and by the church. But they're remarkable for... They're an exception that almost proves the rule. One of the most famous sex trials of all time, of course, which you describe in your book, was the trial of Oscar Wilde. Yes. He was uh, the most famous playwright of his era. He was also a homosexual, and in 1895 he was hauled into court on a charge, they called it gross indecency. Uh, I know of at least two movies that were made about his life, the latest of which was in 1997, starring uh, Stephen Fry uh, in the lead role. And so before we go any further, I would like to play a scene from that movie. And this is a scene where Wilde is being cross-examined about the letters that he has been exchanging with a young man that he's been having a relationship with. Um, And in this cross-examination, Wilde, played by Fry, uh, gives this very eloquent response. So is it not clear that the love described relates to natural and unnatural love? No. Oh. Then what is the love that dare not speak its name? 
love that dare not speak its name in this century is such a great affection of an elder for a younger man as there was between David and Jonathan, such as Plato made the very basis of his philosophy, and such as you may find in the sonnets of Michelangelo and Shakespeare. It is in this century misunderstood, so much misunderstood that it may be described as the love that dare not speak its name. And on account of it, I am placed where I am now. It is beautiful. It is fine. It is the noblest form of affection. There is nothing unnatural about it. I don't think that exchange went exactly the way the prosecutor hoped or intended. Uh, but watching that, it occurred to me that... Uh, By the way, that is the exact transcript. Is that right? Yeah. The thing that struck me, though, uh, apart from its eloquence, is that uh, Wilde was not being uh, exactly truthful. Uh, and what I mean by that is he made it sound as if he was having a platonic relationship with this man, a spiritual uh, uh, an intellectual relationship, and of course that wasn't the case at all, right? No. Uh, can I give a little bit of background? Sure. Uh, Oscar Wilde is now part of the canon. If you're well read, you've read Oscar Wilde. Uh, he was indeed a, a very successful playwright. When this trial happened, or just before it happened, he had two hit plays running at the West End of London and in New York simultaneously. Those were parlor comedies that were interesting. His novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, did not do well when it came out. It's, it's, it's glorification of a beautiful young man who sells his soul to guard his beauty uh, was, was really criticized when it came out. Kind of a downer, right? Uh, it, no. Well... <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. The downer part of it wasn't... I mean, Dorian Gray comes to a very bad end yeah. in the book. But that part was forgotten. It was the endless passages about the beauty of his mouth and the lips, and also that Dorian Gray, when he sold his soul, went out and had what was clearly gay relations. This is a fascinating case for a hundred reasons. It, it is a fascinating case because it comes just at the time that I was d discussing a moment ago when the identity of a homosexual was being crystallized. And in England, homosexual meant pretentious, upper class, snobby, removed from the uh, honest, bucolic English spirit that, that people were trying to recall. That clip turned out very well for Oscar Wilde because that was in his second trial and there was a hung jury. He wasn't convicted until the next trial. Mm -hmm. He actually did get applause. But honestly, Oscar Wilde was loathed by the, by, the, by the populace. When he was finally convicted, there was dancing in the, in, the, in the streets. Every newspaper said, open the window, let in the fresh air. We've had enough of men, men like this. Oscar Wilde has to be put in context. He, his trial was in 1895. About 15, 20 years earlier, there was a bust of, of a male brothel in which some very highly placed men it's called the Cleveland Street Affair, 
were put on trial and uh, were accused of, um, of patronizing this brothel. And the, one of the aristocrats that was accused brought a, a libel case against the newspaper that named it. And he won. Now, in the intervening 15, 20 years, there was a law passed which penalized gross indecency in private. Okay? The, the tradition in England was death, uh, uh, sodomy was a death crime under Henry VIII. Well, because it was a death crime, there were some very colorful trials, but at this, as life evolved, it became too much. You couldn't, I mean, the people were against it. They didn't think people should be killed for it. Eventually, the penalties were reduced, and, in, and as a last-minute add-on to a case that had nothing to do with homosexuality against taking advantage of young girls, there was something, a little amendment thrown in at the, at the last minute, prohibiting gross indecency and making that worthy of two years of hard, hard labor. That seemed enough to people. Oscar Wilde lived an extraordinary life. He was married. He had two children. He also loved rough boys. He had a real taste for working-class young men. He exalted them in the language of Plato. He was talking about Plato, Plato's sim- symposium. <laughs> and Plato being the great exponent of, of a spiritual, true, good union between an older man yeah. and a younger man. The young man that he was involved with that was the subject of this trial, though, was not a working-class young no, man, right? No, no. His name was Lord Alfred Douglas, yeah. affectionately known as Bosey. Who, <laughs> Alfred Douglas and he had a great love. They also had an apartment in Piccadilly where they would receive young men, and he would, Oscar Wilde gave them gifts, they had sex, and that was there. They were slumming it. They were enjoying that. Bosey's father, a very truculent man, known for penning a sense of boxing rules, uh, made it his mission in life to bring down Oscar Wilde. He accused Oscar Wilde of being a sodomite. Oscar Wilde brought a libel case against him, and that was clearly thinking about yeah. the Cleveland Street affair. Yeah. And I think Oscar Wilde saw life as a great feast. He was the most clever person going. He probably thought he would, you know, simply have sport in court, uh, and 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 vindicate his name, and have some fun, and drive the crowds to his place. What he didn't say uh, was the truth: is that under the law, he was uh, committing gross indecency, and and he lied. I don't think the lie was. Uh, I, I mean, one's personal opinion about gay sex—that's something else. But his lawyer asked him at the beginning. Is the accusation true? And he said, on my honor as a gentleman, it's not. Yeah. Brought a libel case, lost it when his opponents began to... I mean, he, he had been blackmailed for a long time by the Rough Boys bringing yeah. these letters out. And, and uh, he lost it, and then as soon as he lost it, he, he, uh, there was a warrant issued for his arrest. That speech came in his first trial for gross indecency, all during the case. His friends were saying, please, leave. You can escape. In fact, the prosecution held back a little bit before they arrested him to let him go. His mother said she would never speak to him again if he left. And I think he, that's one of the all-time yeah. hubris, you know? And, yeah. And, uh, he was, to a certain extent, the instrument of his own downfall. He, entirely. Uh, yeah. And within weeks, well, he was also having lived this remarkably in, uh, wealthy life. He belonged to 100 clubs and ate in the finest restaurants. He was terribly in debt. Within weeks, all of his property had been sold. His wife and his children were in disgrace. And he did two years at hard, hard labor. So his use of the platonic ideal 
in court showed his, it was, it's a gorgeous speech and I'm glad it was said, but it showed his complete lack of um, integration with the spirit of the times. He was, he helped crystallize the image of the homosexual as being a predatory, snobbish, effeminate uh, fop. In another chapter uh, in your book, uh, you write about a guy named Anthony Comstock. Uh, who, who lived in the 19th century and uh, championed what was perhaps the first great anti-obscenity crusade in the United States. T- talk a little bit about him. I wouldn't say it was the first, but I would say it was the, the great, first great. The, the, great. the most successful, let's put <laughs> okay. it like, like that. Okay. Anthony Comstock was a dry goods salesman from Brooklyn uh, who had a shop and never did terribly well. He was also uh, a compulsive masturbator as a child. And How do we know that? He wrote it. Oh, he wrote about uh, it. Okay. And, and he wrote a lot. And he... And masturbated a lot. Well, I guess so. Yeah. And he felt when he did, and that was also... He, 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 his career high was between about 1873 and 1903, 1904. That was during the scientific era of masturbation being physically harmful and masturbation somehow resulting in a, um, a depletion of, of vitality. Well, the, and, the ancient Greeks believed that, right? I, I don't think they had any belief about that one or the other. The notion of masturbation being a medical risk mm-hmm. really came into belief uh, in the 18th century with a doctor named Samuel Tissot who wrote a book called Onanism which became like a mess. But like the Greek athletes, weren't they encouraged to be, uh, to uh, abstain before a great athletic event? I wish I could say I knew, I really don't. Okay. I, uh, but but the, uh, I doubt it. But at the, at the same time pornography was linked with masturbation, of course, as of course it always is, and was considered, it, it had the scientific imprimatur of being, the, those that worked against it were able to say, and this is harmful. And so Anthony Comstock was a true believer uh, in that pornography was a bad thing. He teamed up with the YMCA in the early, in the 1870s and uh, took the example of a recent act in England which allowed authorities to seize obscene matter and on the spot. America, I don't think, was any less against pornography than England. We, they, they just didn't have the legal tools. So on the basis of the Commerce Clause, a clause that's being debated quite a bit these days, the far reach of it, he pushed through with the YMCA a law, which is called the Comstock Act, which empowered the Postal Service to inter- intercept and uh, uh, impound and allow the federal government to prosecute those that transmit obscene matter through the mail. Now, there was no internet, the mail was everything. So with that authority, Comstock was off to the races. What a shock, he became the main enforcer for the Postal Service and, and became the face of it. Now, the key thing is the definition of obscene is always a squirrely thing. We're still wrestling with it. Uh, I don't have it memorized, but the definition of obscene was as wide as it could be in that act. And it didn't just include material of a sexual nature. It also include, included scientific and birth control information. 
Now, whereas actual birth control information had nothing to do with eroticism, that all fell within the ambit of the Comstock Act. Comstock became an unbelievably energetic prosecutor, constantly bragging about the tonnage of vampire literature that he would confiscate in the people that he arrested. And um, it worked. And for a while, he had popular backing, the New York Times, uh, as it was expanding its readership to the, from the upper to the middle to the, you know, as literacy expanded, people were buying newspapers. They assumed a more popular tone. And they were behind him. And um, he, he, was, he was like a steamroller. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And so at some point, people began to tire of him. He, he, he began to be seen as a monomaniacal buffoon as opposed to a guardian of public morals. But before that arc played itself out, there were a lot of people that were caught within one... one uh, there was uh, Dr. Foote, uh, Edward Foote, who put out a pamphlet about birth control and that sort of thing, jailed. A woman who wrote a guide for couples to love each other, kind of a stupid little pamphlet, jailed, killed herself. Uh, a famous abortionist, jailed. Um, to Comstock, they were rats to be exterminated. So today, of course, we have the Internet, and uh, apart from providing access to a lot of classified legal uh, government documents, uh, it also provides us access with an awful lot of pornography. And according to the surveys that I've seen, uh, what the part of the country that we call the Bible Belt uh, views this material with at least as much avidity as more. other parts. Yeah, okay, yeah. at least as much. Um, so I'm wondering um, how you think the Internet, uh, which has made pornography so much more ubiquitous and accessible, how that has changed the way we view the regulation and repression and punishment of sexual behavior. Well, on, to some extent, it's the same issue in a different setting. The first pornography prosecutions that I could find happened in Rome in the 16th century with images that were on the Vatican walls, which were mass-produced. The Vatican thought they had destroyed all the, couple, all the copies, and they weren't. That's always been the case. You can't interdict this kind of thing entirely. It just simply doesn't happen. The Internet is simply an extremely efficient uh, delivery system of the same old thing. I remember asking my son when he was 12 years old uh, how quick it would be for him, how quickly he could get around a net nanny that I bought for our home internet. He said, about four seconds. And I said, do I need to bother? And he said, it's up to you. But I can get around anything. And so I think to answer your question directly, it's a question of we now still have, to define obscenity, we have a community standards issue where something is and that was a great advance in its day where, where something is determined obscene under prevailing community standards the idea being that San Francisco would be much more permissive than the Bible Belt and that people should be allowed to set their own local standards for what they find to be uh, illegal or not um, under Comstock there, there were national standards, and uh, not only medical books, but what is now great works of literature, what we believe, what we find to be great works of literature, were all swept under. Now we have a much more evolved standard, but I think with the internet, 
uh, we have to rethink community standards. I just last night read about a case, as I was thinking about this, in which there was, I want to say in Oklahoma, there was a prosecution against a pornography dealer, a guy that had a, a shop for obscenity. Now, a guy who sells pornography in San Francisco is not going to be prosecuted, but he upset local community standards. He won that case. He won that case because he found, his lawyers, clever lawyers, found that in the Marriott down the street, there was a tremendous amount of pornography being downloaded by guests, and that the community standards even of, of um, that particular town were not quite so clear-cut as it's seen. So I think, I don't know what it is, but I think the notion of community standards being uh, a definition of what is or is not obscene it is, seems completely anachronistic at this it point. It seems anachronistic. And yeah. since the law is generally 15 to 20 years behind the times, it's going to take a while to, to, uh, for the law to digest this yes. and understand it. If there's one sexual act, it seems to me, that we're considerably more punitive about these days, uh, it's the act of having sex with minors. And in this yes. regard, you mention in your book... Uh, the case of Roman Polanski, the, the film director who back in 1977 pleaded guilty to having sex with a 13-year-old girl. Uh, he pled guilty. Uh, there was a deal in the works, a rather you know, uh, uh, tolerant deal that I believe it, it would requ- wouldn't have required him to s- serve any prison time at any all. Any additional prison time. Yeah. And, uh, 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 but then the deal fell through somehow because the judge, uh, he, he upset, the, Polanski upset the judge somehow. Polanski fled to Europe. Uh, she's now in her mid-30s. I believe she's gone on the record as an adult saying that uh, uh, she would uh, be in favor of uh, the charges being dropped. Uh, I- I'm kind of curious, since you write about this case, so what's your view on it? Do you think that uh, if U- U.S. Marshals were somehow able at this late date to get a hold of Polanski, that he should serve prison time? Personally? Yeah. Yes. I think my, my personal belief is that to be a grown man with a girl of that age, he also uh, put some drugs in her drink. He didn't mention that. He didn't mention that, interview, but that, yeah. that's critical. Yeah. Uh, my sense is that kind of abuse of power and influence is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my firm belief. It's a recent belief as far as mor- morality law goes. If he had been caught... In California, earlier uh, a century earlier, he would have been in the clear. The uh, in the late 19th century, the age of consent in Delaware was under 10. The age in California was 10, and that was the age in most places. There was there's always been a belief that older men almost have younger women as as legitimate prey. In fact, the the uh, I don't know if we have the time to go into it, but the there's incredible stories told in the book about the battles that were waged to raise the age. It wasn't easy. There was a lot of resistance in Parliament and in the legislatures here in the United States. The belief being that this will simply give young girls a way to shake down influential wealthy men like him. Also, even after the ages were raised, men were given a pass, white men were given a pass often because of that exact belief. Well, she was a temptress. I couldn't resist. She knew what she was doing, etc. Uh, the bright line was not so bright then. I think it's a testament to how far we've come. And uh, since 1977, 
that the kind of deal, the plea deal that he had uh, in Santa Monica, California in the 70s would never be accepted now, simply never. Whether or not he should be an international fugitive and the American government should spend millions chasing him down, that's another question. But uh, the notion of a child having a body worth protecting Mm -hmm. and a child being uh, protected by the law against men of influence is a recent uh, event and one to be noted. We're almost out of time. Let me ask you one last question. Uh, You were now 12 years into the 21st century. Uh, We have a president who says that same-sex couples should be allowed to get married. Incest is still a taboo, taboo, certainly. Sex with minors is arguably more taboo than ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Men can be found guilty of raping their wives. Pornography is more accessible than ever. I could go on here, but my question is, so where are we all going as a society? Are we perhaps more pagan-like now than we were 100 years ago with certain vestiges of Puritanism thrown in, or is it, is it more complicated than that? Oh, I think, I think you know it's a lot more complicated <laughs> than that. It's, it's, uh, I'm not sure if we're pagan, except uh, other than we're setting priorities in a different way. One of the things, uh, the future of sex law, if the real developments are going to be the continuing adjustment of, of our society to uh, transgender relationships, you know, to gay, transgender, queer is a whole new category people are adopting, but also I think really biology the, the notion of the rights of people who were conceived through artificial insemination, surrogate motherhood, the, the, our ability, and it is an ability, unprecedented, to move along and change the reproductive process uh, is going to challenge tra- traditional rights of parents and children in ways that I can't imagine. I have friends in France who are working on these issues. They're uh, in a very big way. That's the French government and the European governments are really focusing on this far more than we are here. Um, we're still stuck in stem cells and whether or not they should be used to prevent disease. But the the real developments to keep an eye on are going to be the, the removal of sex, as we know it, from the reproductive process, and whether or not the results of those efforts are going to carry with them the same rights, liabilities, and consequences that traditional reproductive relationships have always had. Eric Berkowitz, thank you so much. It was a treat. It's really fun to talk <laughs> with you. Thank you. Okay. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.